Chapter One of His Big Opportunity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele de Pignarole. His Big Opportunity by Amy Lefebvre. Chapter One On the Garden Wall. They were sitting astride on the top of the old garden wall. Below them on the one side stretched a sweet, old-fashioned English garden lying in the blaze of an August sun. In the distance, peeping from behind a wealth of creepers and ivy, was the old stone house. It was at an hour in the afternoon when everything seemed to be at a standstill. Two or three dogs lay on the soft green lawn fast asleep, an old gardener smoking his pipe and sitting on the edge of a wheelbarrow seemed following their example, and birds and insects only kept up a monotonous and drowsy dirge. But the two little figures, clad in white cricketing flannels, were full of life and motion as they kept up an eager and animated conversation on their lofty seat. You see, Dudley, if nothing happens, we will make it happen. Then it isn't an opportunity. Yes, it is. Why, if those old fellows in olden times hadn't ridden off to look for adventures, they would never have found them at home. But an opportunity isn't an adventure. Yes, it is. An adventure is something that happens and so is an opportunity. The little speaker who announced this logic so dogmatically was a slim, delicate boy with a white face and large brown eyes, and a crop of dark, unruly curls that had a trick of defying the hair-cutter's skill, and of growing so erratically that Master Roy's head was pronounced quite unmanageable. He was not a pretty boy, and was in delicate health, constantly subject to attacks of bronchitis and asthma. Yet his spirit was undaunted, and, as his old nurse often said, his soul was too strong for his body. Dudley, his little cousin, who sat facing him, was, on the contrary, a true specimen of a handsome English boy. Chestnut hair and bright blue eyes, rosy cheeks, and an upright, sturdy carriage did much to commend him to everyone's favor. Yet for force of character and intellect he came far behind Roy. He sat now pondering Roy's words and kicking his heels against the wall whilst his dark eyes roved over the road on the outside of the garden and away to a dark pine wood opposite. "'Here's one coming, then,' he said suddenly. "'Now you'll have to use it.' "'Who? What? Where?' "'It's a man, a tramp, a traveller, or a highwayman, and he may be all the lot together. It's an opportunity, isn't it?' Roy looked down the narrow lane outside the wall and saw the figure of a man approaching. His face lit up with eager resolve. "'He's a stranger, Dudley.' He don't belong to the village. We'll ask him who he is. Hello, you fellow, shouted Dudley in his shrill, boyish treble. Where do you come from? You don't belong to this part. The man looked up at the boys curiously. And who may ye be? A wall climbing and breaking over in folks' gardens to steal their fruit? Don't you cheek us, said Roy, throwing his head up and putting on his most autocratic air. This is our garden and all our wall, and the road you're walking on is our private road. Then don't you take to insulting passers-by, or it will be the worse for ye, retorted the man. The boys were silent. I'm sure he isn't an opportunity, whispered Dudley. But Roy would not be disconcerted. Look here, he said, adopting a conciliatory tone. We're looking out for an opportunity to do someone some good, and when you came along, that's why we spoke to you. Now just tell us if we can do it to you. Yes, Dudley struck in. You seem rather down. Do you want anything that we can give you? 
The man glanced up at them to see if this was boyish impudence, but the faces bending down were earnest and grave enough, and he said with a short laugh, "'Oh, I reckon there be just a few things I'm in want of, but as to your givin' of them to me, that be quite a different matter. Don't suppose you carry about jobs ready to hand in your pockets, nor yet my set of tools in pawn, nor yet a pint of beer and a good hunk of bread and meat for a starvin' feller. Maybe you could tell me the way to the nearest pub and stay me a drink there.' Roy thrust his hand immediately into his pocket, and pulled out amongst a confused mass of boys' treasures a sixpence. "'I'll give you this if it will do you good,' he said, holding it up proudly. "'I've kept it a whole two days without spending it. "'It will give you some beer and cheese and bread, I expect. "'Is there anything else we can do for you?' "'If you go to Mr. Selby, the rector, he'll put you in the way of work,' shouted out Dudley, as the man caught the sixpence going down to him and slouched off with muttered thanks. "'No parsons for me,' was the rejoinder. The boys watched his figure disappear down the road, and then Roy said reflectively, "'Too many opportunities like that would empty our pockets.' "'And I wonder if it will really do him good,' said Dudley, then glancing over into the garden, added, "'Here comes Aunt Judy. She's calling us.' Down the winding gravel path came their aunt, a strikingly handsome woman. She looked up at her little nephews and laughed when she came to the wall. "'Oh, you imps, do you know I've been hunting for you everywhere? You will have a fall like Humpty Dumpty if you choose such high places. Now what comfort can you find, may I ask, in such a blazing breakneck seat? Do you find broken bottles a soft cushion?' "'We've cleared those rotten things away here,' said Dudley, preparing to clamber down. "'It's our watchtower, and we've a first-rate view. You just come up and see.' "'Thank you. I would rather not attempt the climb.' "'What have you been talking about? "'Jonathan looks as grave as a judge.' "'Roy looked down at his aunt without moving. "'If you won't laugh or tell Granny, we'll tell you, "'because you never split if you say you won't.' "'All right, I promise. "'Well, you see, this morning Mr. Selby gave this for our copy. "'As ye have opportunity, do good unto all men. "'And he told it of a king somebody, I forget who, "'he used to write down at the end of each day on a slate. "'If he hadn't done any good to anyone,' I've lost a day. We thought this would be a good plan to start this afternoon and see what we could do. We tried an old howl first, but he didn't seem to like it. He was uncovering some of the frames, so we went and uncovered all of them, and then he said he had spoiled them in his feelings and nearly went into a fit with rage. I turned the hose on him to cool him down. He's asleep in the wheelbarrow now. We can see him from here. We really came up here to get out of his way. His language was awful. "'Come down, you monkey. I can't carry on a conversation with you so far above me. Softly now. Bless the boys, how they can stick their toes into such a wall is past my comprehension. Granny wants to see you before your tea, so come along. And who else has benefited by your good deeds?' She was walking towards the house by this time, each boy hanging on to one of her arms. It was easy to see the affection between them. Dudley eagerly poured out the story of the tramp, and Miss Bertram listened sympathetically. Never send a man to a public house, boys, and never give him money for beer. Perhaps he may have come down in the world through love of it. You know I am always ready to give anyone a relief ticket. That's the best way to help in such cases. Yes, but that would be your doing, not ours. Money is a difficult way of helping, said Miss Bertram. Don't get into the habit of thinking money is the only thing that will do people good. It too often does them harm. Oh, I say, that's hard lines on me when my last sixpence is gone and I was going to get a stunning ball old principal has in his shop. Miss Bertram laughed at Roy's woebegone little face. 
"'Never mind,' she said, consolingly. "'Your intentions were good, and you must buy your experience by mistakes as you go through life. "'Now go into Granny softly, both of you, and talk nicely to her. "'She will be one person you can do good to, by brightening her up a little.' Dudley made a grimace at Roy, but both boys entered the house and crept into a cool, half-darkened drawing-room on tiptoe, with hushed voices and a sober demeanour. A stern old lady sat upright in her easy-chair, knitting busily. She greeted the boys rather coldly. "'What have you been doing with yourselves? I sent for you some time ago. Do you not remember that I like you to come to me every afternoon about this hour?' "'Yes, Granny,' said Roy, climbing into an easy-chair opposite her. We were coming, only we didn't know it was so late. We were busy talking. Boys chatter ought not to come before a grandmother's wishes. There was silence, then Dudley struck in boldly. We were talking about good things, Granny. It wasn't chatter. Roy and I were going to look for opportunities every day of our lives. Do you think an opportunity is the same as an adventure? I don't think you have adventures of doing good, do you? Yes, asserted Roy, bobbing up and down his chair excitedly. King Arthur and his knights did always. They never rode through a wood without having an adventure, and it was always doing good, wasn't it, Granny? Conversation never slackened when the boys were present, and Mrs. Bertram, though shrinking at all times from their high spirits and love of fun, yet looked forward every day to their short visit. She was a confirmed invalid and rarely left the house, and her daughter Julia, in consequence, took her place as mistress over the household. Three years before, Roy and Dudley arrived within a month of each other to find a home with their grandmother. Roy, whose proper name was Fitzroy, came from Canada, both his parents having died out there. Dudley's father had died when he was a baby, but his mother had married again in India, and upon her death, which had occurred not long after, his stepfather had sent him home to his grandmother. From the first day that they met, the boys were sworn friends, and their aunt Dudley, David and Jonathan, after having been an unseen witness of a very solemn vow transacted between them under the shadow of the pines, only a week after their meeting. Roy's delicate health was a cause of great anxiety to his grandmother, and if it had not been for Miss Bertram's wise tact and judgment, he would have been imprisoned in one room and swathed in cotton wool most of the year round. He had the advantage of having an old nurse who had brought him up from his birth, and had come from Canada with him, and she was as built and experienced in managing his ailments as could be desired. Poor little Roy, with his uncertain health, was heir to a very large property of his father's not far away, and the responsibilities awaiting him, and the knowledge that he would have so much power in his hands, perhaps had the effect of making him weigh life more seriously than would most boys in his age. Later on, after their visit to their grandmother was over, and tea had been finished in the nursery, he wandered into his own little room, and leaning out of his window, looked up into the clear sky above. I feel so small, was his wistful thought, and heaven is so big, but I'll do something big enough to get. Well done, good and faithful servant, said to me when I die, I hope, and I'll try every day till I do it. End of chapter 1 Recording by Adele de Pinerole.